Hi, I'm joined today by the phenomenal Mr. Bernard Salt. Thank you so much for joining us. Bernard has been a commentator and writer with the Australian for nearly 15 years now. And until it all went to pot, he was one of the leading speakers on the corporate circuit here in Australia. He is a thought leader. He is fascinated by social trends and where we're heading, which I think if ever there was a conversation that needed to be about where we're heading socially and in terms of our lifestyle, that would be right now with you. And he also, you run your own business, I understand. You, your interest in demographics and studying demographics and... Uh, yes, well, in fact, that's, uh, that's what I've made my career around. Yeah. Um, in actual fact, uh, I trained as a school teacher, um, okay. went through the, the training, did my teaching rounds, uh, realised that teaching wasn't for me, and so went back to university, did another degree, and um, stumbled into demography, of all things, okay. and uh, had built a okay. career around it. So uh, yeah. uh, it was no, there's not a great deal of planning behind it. I just kept doing <laughs> what I enjoyed doing and what people tend to reaffirm what I was doing. So keep doing what you're, what you're encouraged to do is my, my advice to others, I suppose. Okay. And how's it going these times? You must be more in demand than ever around... <laughs> well, in fact, over the last uh, 10 or even 15 years, I have pretty much made my living uh, not just by writing for the Australian newspaper, but also speaking, uh, corporate speaking yeah. around Australia and New Zealand and beyond. Uh, of course, the, uh, the speaking circuit has stopped dead uh, mm. about uh, six weeks ago and uh, doesn't look like uh, being revived anytime soon. Uh, but there's certainly been an, an extraordinary interest in social commentary. And I think yeah. that people are really grasping that we are going through quite a transformative time at the moment. It's not a world war, uh, but, and it, but it is a significant event. And I think we will come out quite different on the other side of this event. Well, that's the thing, thank you. That's the thing I find really fascinating about this. And that's not me putting aside the human toll on this at all, but we're here to talk about the social trend of it. And how do you predict how it's going to look socially when we're barely getting our heads and hearts around what it means to us today, which was different to yesterday? Well, well the thing about the coronavirus is that it has just been so global and so quick. Uh, yeah. even, even if you look back to something like uh, the First World War or even the Second World War, you know, it was really about a year before we really knew the scale of what was involved. Uh, whereas with the coronavirus, uh, it really started to ramp up in Australia in um, early to even mid-March. And here we are, barely a month later, and uh, the entire economy has been closed down or substantially shut down. So it's the, the scale and the, and the pace of this that I think is really um, breathtaking and that has really united the nation. We're all focused on exactly the same thing. There's been no time in history where the entire nation has been as focused on a single daily occurrence or event. They didn't have the social media uh, in order to no. keep abreast of things, I suppose. Uh, but I think that really magnifies the social impact when we're all focused at the same time on effectively a life and death issue, getting updates every day, it does tend to change people. For me, there's an us and them element to this and the them is the virus. So we're the collective us, 25.5 million Australians or the planet, if you like, is the us and the them is the virus. So we're very united globally. 
But even then within that, I feel we're creating pockets that are different. So I'm feeling very different to an American right now. And I'm feeling very different to an Italian. So there's an us and them element, but I don't know if it's universal. Well, yes, I also would argue that at no time, literally in human history, has the entire planet been united against a common foe. And in fact, it really is the stuff of science fiction writers. If you think of the movie Independence Day, yeah. 1996, aliens were coming from another world and threatening life on Earth, and yeah. humanity came together to fight off this alien foe. And in some respects, this is as close as we're going to get to it. It is. We, we are united as human beings because we are all threatened, not by an alien force, but by a, a microbe, I suppose. Yeah. And, and it's occurred to us that this might actually happen again. And I think that thinking is going to drive a lot of behaviours in the 2020s. Yeah, I was reading where you wrote that in one of your articles, and my immediate thought was, we tend to, as humanity, have a very poor relationship with uncertainty. We have a very poor relationship with long-term planning. We can't plan against climate change, let alone against a pandemic. We don't seem to be that skilled. Our intuitions tell us to deal with the short term. That tends to be evolutionary-wise what we're wired to deal with. But, but I think that, that we are a product of our times. We have, there has not been a world war in 75 years. No. We have not been seriously threatened by a depression or significant recession in a generation or two, in fact, since the early 1990s. And so in some respects, why would we contemplate uh, a global catastrophe when it hasn't occurred to us, it hasn't occurred in almost you know, 75 years or so, yeah. therefore we can live in the moment and uh, take risks. And it's only with this virus that we've suddenly realized the extent to which we have been taking risks. And a good example of that is in Australia's supply chain network. If you look at um, the mask supply, we have one manufacturer in Australia that manufactures surgical masks. I think there's more now, but that manufacturer used to deliver, used to manufacture 2 million a year. Uh, we actually need 100 million just at the moment yep. in order to meet our domestic and medical needs. So really, we need to start thinking about a concept that I call supply chain sovereignty, yep. where we actually control all the bits and pieces that go into the critical infrastructure and medical masks and uh, ventilators and other bits and pieces, it suddenly occurred to us, really, we should be managing that somewhere on the Australian continent. Eric Weinstein, who's a social commentator, uh, says we've been in the big nap for 75 years, that we've had this comfort zone and lack of adversity for 75 years. That's three generations, Bernard. We're really comfortable and suddenly we don't know how to be this uncomfortable. That's how it's feeling to me. Well, I think that is exactly correct. And when you think about you know, the, all of the sacrifice made by those who fought and died in the Second World War, and the reason why you would go through that adversity and pain mm. is to create a better life for those who follow. And we have certainly benefited from that. The baby boomers, Generation X, the millennials, and whoever else you want to throw in there over the last 75 years, 
The flip side of that is that after 75 years, you actually become used to that. You're not wired to protect against what might happen uh, in the future. And I suppose we've been watching on the climate front and reasonably so, and maybe even thinking, well, there might be a significant conflict, a military conflict or terrorism. Yes, that's a possibility. What I don't think we really contemplated was a global pandemic. And I most certainly don't think that uh, corporates or even governments have been really prepared for that. If we had, then we would have had all of that critical infrastructure um, stockpiled in Australia prior to the pandemic uh, starting. It's a very uncomfortable conversation as a politician to prepare for something that seems beyond our ability to visualise. Again, we're not very good at hearing that we need something for our own good that might never happen, and this is what it's going to cost us. We'll spend the money now, but we wouldn't have spent it two months ago. Well, I, th I think that is exactly right. Although I would argue that things like face masks, I don't know what a face mask costs. It can't be any more than $2 to make. Uh, that's Less than 30 cents, Bernard. Then now over $2, you can't get them cheaper because right. we import them. Right. in one of our companies, but they used to be less than 30 cents, but you can't get them for that anymore. But I think that this, this goes to the heart. It's illustrated a fragility in the way we had organised society. We had based it on an assumption. There's a sovereign yep. risk here. And that yep. assumption is that we will be able to trade and move freely across the planet, unimpeded forever into the future. And when you think about it, um, you know, that's, that's quite a brave or heroic assumption. Uh, and in You're fact, being really kind. <laughs> well, it is. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know we, I think when we come out of this, there is going to be a greater appetite for Australians to think and buy locally. I, one of my columns um, back last week in The Australian, I, I said how consumer choices have changed. Mm. If your usual brand of toilet paper or your usual brand of hand soap is not yeah. available, then you look at other choices. And I did that uh, yeah. last you know, two weeks ago or so. And um, I chose uh, an Australian brand called Basistos. Never heard of it. And I thought I'd give it a go. And I absolutely love it. You know, I think it was another extra dollar or something like that, a little yeah. bit extra to buy it. And I thought, I'm supporting Australian jobs and I'm supporting an Australian industry. I felt good actually buying that product. And I think that other people will uh, will start to think that way as well. And why is that? Because I've got a feeling we're going to think in terms of don't get more money on the credit card. I'm, and again, we're crystal balling right now, but I've got a sense that it's watch the credit card. You don't know whether, if you're going to keep your job. Very uncertain times. It's the time to budget and buy as cheaply as you can. And unfortunately, I think we're going to increase our reliance on places like China. Well, yes, yes. And no, I think, I think that, um, I think that uh, people who have the capacity to support or make those choices uh, will and, and should make mm. them. Think of it as another, you know, very small marginal tax that you're yeah. paying to shore up Australia's manufacturing base, to keep jobs here, to keep businesses here. Um, you know, we're, we're very much focused on the jobs of the future, you know, the, the type of work we'll be doing in the future, and that's reasonable and, 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 and fair enough but we also need to be focusing on the job or the, the businesses that we're creating in Australia. You can't have jobs in the future without creating businesses today. So support businesses, support jobs, support the Australian supply chain. That's really, I think, going to be a, 
a real theme coming out of this in 2021 uh, and beyond. Have you told the unions that? Well, I, I would imagine that they would, they would love that. Uh, labour costs uh, aren't coming down. We're, sorry, uh, we're 10 times the labour cost of some parts of Asia, so labour costs aren't dropping anytime soon. Well, yes, that's, that may well be the case, but I think that's the cost of, uh, of the Australian lifestyle. And I think that, uh, uh, that if we can support that, I think it's, it goes to supporting a strong and independent Australia. If we need to pay a higher price for some goods and services, then I think there's going to be a greater appetite uh, to actually um, to do that uh, going forward. The reality is that this virus, whilst it's very severe and it's going to take a human toll, um, it's not it's not in the same um, degree of lethality, lethalness, uh, as like the bubonic plague. But yeah. who's to say that by 2030 or 2040, there could not be another global pandemic more significant. And at that time, it will be even more critical that we have the capacity to manufacture, not just surgical equipment and masks and whatever, but also the medicines and uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that we will need to protect ourselves. Also things like steel manufacture and just the basics that we're over-reliant now globally. We didn't, you never anticipated it would just get shut down and we would have to find another way because China shut down and there we were, we couldn't get it anymore. You're, you seem to be an optimist. I read, when I was reading your work, you came through marginally optimistic, but you seem more optimistic in person. My, I have a tendency to be a bit more of a pessimist, Bernard. So. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I, I was, used to be very cautious about the future many years ago, um, but I was, I was turned around by the global financial crisis. Um, at that time, I thought, you know, listening and reading all of the, all of the predictions about the disaster that was going to unfold, it was like a bomb had gone off in Wall Street. It was only a matter of time before the whole of Australia was flattened. What actually happened after the global financial crisis is that commodity prices skyrocketed, Australian dollar skyrocketed, and Australia had three years of a boom within a boom. 2009 to 2011, 12 were absolutely boom years for Australia. So rather than it being a disaster, it actually turned out to be to deliver extraordinary prosperity. And when you think about it, we're safe, we're secure, we're 25, 26 million people, um, we have good governance, we're, we're, we, we generally have good social cohesion. Yes, I, I get it that there's, everything is not exactly as we would want sure. it, but in a broader scheme of things, we're broadly, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a good society and with good prospects, with good prospects for growth and development into the future. In my view, if you would think, well, where on the planet would you rather be at a time of a global pandemic? And I can think of no better place than Australia. And even beyond that, I think Australia in the 2020s will prosper. One of my columns, I looked at how Australia performed in the, 20, in the 1920s after the First World War, in the 1950s mm. after the Second World War. Well, in the 1920s, there was a boom. We built businesses like Woolworths. Yeah. In 1924, um, institutions like the ABC and Qantas came out of that decade. And in the 1950s, we had a surge in immigration, people coming to the light and space and freedom and opportunity of Australia. And we attracted aspirational entrepreneurial immigrants 
people like Frank Lowy, who went yep. on to create the Westfield Empire, and Dick Dusseldorf, a Dutch migrant who created Civil and Civic, which is now Lend-Lease. So all of this energy, this aspiration, comes to fruition in Australia after a major calamity. So you can say, well, you know, if, if the world is, is perplexed and concerned about what has happened with the, with the pandemic, then maybe starting afresh as a business migrant, as an investor, as someone who wants a fresh opportunity, why would you not come to Australia? And that's- I'm with you. I think it's the best place in the world to be. If you have to go through this, this is the country to be. It's- Well, well that's, the, that's the history. And I can't actually say why this is the case, but the openness, the space, the freedom, the quality of life, the social cohesion. Yes, there's a lot of places and a lot of areas where we need to improve, but you would have to say that generally and in comparison with other places, Australia is not a bad choice. Yeah. How much do you take into account and what do you think about or how do you think about the human desire to settle back into getting back to normal? There's well, this big push. We can't wait for it to get back to normal. And that seems to be very <laughs> ingrained in the human psyche. Well, I understand that. I mean, people like routine and um, certainly it's not ideal not being able to go to the shops or or to uh, conduct your work as you would wish. Um, I think that when we say we want to get back to normal, I think the reality is that we will be getting back to a new normal. Yes. The Australia we re-emerge into after we come out of our dwellings and get back into the real world of uh, the post-corona world, I think we'll see that it's moved on. I think that we will be more concerned or more um, more able to work from home in the future. Prior to the coronavirus, uh, about 5% of the Australian workforce worked from home. I think that could be something like 10 or even 15% mm -hmm. after uh, we go back to work. People have gotten used to this. You know, it's a better way, more productive, people will say. I also think that there is an argument to say that there is a, a shift in consumer values, certainly by local, by Australian being very focused on being more prudent with what you're buying, looking at used yep. by dates. I think that is, uh, that is a good thing to come uh, out, of, uh, out of all this. Um, and um, and uh, certainly being grateful for what we have rather than um, say, perhaps complaining about what we don't have. Uh, I, I actually think that there will be a shift in values, consumer values going forward. One of your early articles before this became us you wrote about moving away from materialism. That was one of two articles you wrote prior to starting to write about the virus times. <laughs> and you wrote about how we've gone into post-materialism and living in a post-material world. The article was in March, sorry, February, late February. Yeah. Where do you believe that? I, I believe the virus is going to extend that, that it's going to be definitely more post-materialism because we're going to focus we've... on meaning. I think we have shifted our values yeah. um, and to the extent that I think we're becoming less me-focused and more we-focused, more about us. Uh, if you think about this, uh, if you are working from home, you don't need to dress up, uh, you don't need to have, you know, people have um, the pillows on the bed. I call it the pillowfication effect. You have five <laughs> or six pillows. And the idea is that when you have visitors that walk down the central hallway and they glimpse into the bedroom, and they judge you 
by how perfect your bed is, is made. But if you don't have visitors, you don't need to do all that. Yeah. All of a sudden you realise, you know what? It didn't really matter. If you look at any of the news bulletins, they will have regular updates where they'll feed in by Zoom or Skype uh, experts, medical experts, and you'll see them at home and they have a lived-in home. You know, the lighting's not perfect, yes. the sound's not perfect. You know what? You don't have to live a perfect mm. life with mm. perfect pillows on the perfect bed. That is what we're learning. Don't tell the we're Kardashians. Sorry? Don't tell the Kardashians. Uh, well, again, you would say that... <laughs> that we have passed peak yep. Kardashian. Yep. And, in, and also with regard to the pandemic, in the early weeks, many of the celebrities, particularly out of Hollywood, were sort of venturing online with, you know, songs or what clips and uh, seeking attention and further adulation. And they were very quickly shut down in social media. What would you know you're not really living the same sort of life as the rest of us? Mm. The real heroes here are no longer the influencers and the celebrities. Mm. It is the bushfire volunteers. It is the healthcare frontline. And yeah. it is the supermarket workers. Yep. How interesting at times that. What's Who magazine going to do? What are all the places going to do where it's about telling us how we're supposed to be? And now it's... Well, you could argue that they just need to switch their focus instead of focusing on the Kardashians and uh, people living this glamorous, affected sort of lifestyle. How about focusing on people giving and contributing and selflessly self-sacrificing for the community? They're the values. I hope, I sincerely hope that we hang on to that shift in thinking and carry it forward into the post-corona world. I don't think we need to be um, terribly, you know, we don't need to carry it entirely, but I think there are elements of that thinking that we need to take forward into the post-corona world. Positive psychology research would tell you you're exactly right, that we're never gonna have a sense of well-being as long as we focus on the me generation or what's in it for me or how good am I looking or social media. We only gonna get well-being when we have an attitude of gratitude and we come from a place of kindness and do kind actions. That's how to feel great about ourselves. Well, again, I think that um, that, that reality check, you know, there's certainly people in life, people who've been subjected to hardship or, or you know, a health scare or something like that will have gone through that realisation and individually come to that position, but not universally, not 25 or 26 million people no. at the same time being, being shaped by the same events in a very intense, collective sort of way. It's never happened before. And that is why I think that, say, two or three months of lockdown in 2020 has as big a social impact on a country as five or six years of war three generations ago. It's the biggest social behavioural experiment ever conducted, not deliberately, in the history of mankind. We have more data points now, social media, we can track people. We have information about how we respond to crisis now that we never would have had before. How do you think we're doing? Well, generally, I think certainly Australians, I think are doing, are doing very well. Um, there are other parts of the world that are, are very worrying. What, and, and certainly if you look at New York at the moment, uh, Italy, 
uh, Iran, uh, even, uh, even the UK. What really also concerns me is parts of Africa that perhaps don't have the same healthcare facilities, don't have the same testing facilities. I same sanitation. What, yeah, I wonder, I wonder what, uh, say in the Democratic um, Republic of the Congo uh, or in Nigeria, for example, very densely populated communities without uh, Western um, or developed world uh, medical and healthcare facilities. How will the, how will the pandemic play out there uh, throughout the balance of 2020? That to me, I think is, uh, is what really concerns me going forward. What concerns me is the places with the worst sanitation, the highest concentration of populations, the lowest ability to deliver medical, medical care, this is gonna hit them the hardest and it's the least places we can get into and provide the help that's needed. And whilst Australia is taking a hit, our hits are manageable. We are being funded to take the hit. We are literally having a government that's strong enough and wealthy enough to pay us through these times, not pay us all beautifully, I get that. But there are countries right now, Egypt has no welfare system. If you're out of a job, that's it. You're, that there are so many places in the world that they don't have any safety net whatsoever. So for me, it, in Australia, and I know I'm speaking from a place of such privilege because I do have the benefit, as you speak of, the suburban backyard and the space, and I can go walk in. I'm not bumping into 12 people every 100 metres. I have all of those luxuries and I have a safety net. And now I'm looking at these countries, as you're saying, they have none of this. And I want to keep in focus just what we have compared to countries right now. There's no TVs going to and telling us what they're experiencing. And it's nothing like the experience you and I are having. Well, this is, this is the, the, you know, the great concern. I do feel that the developed world will, will get this issue under control, yeah. certainly over the next three to six months or so. Yeah. But, the, uh, but the third world... Uh, as such, will struggle with this uh, perhaps for a year or two years uh, until a vaccine is um, is um, is discovered or and developed and then distributed uh, across the uh, across the planet. It goes to the issue though of how how what are the learnings we need to take from this as a people as a humanity in order to ensure that that it, 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 these things are, are managed better. Uh, in the future. Um, things like um, reporting uh, an outbreak initially, for example, this, uh, this virus, I think, was first identified back in December of November. last year. And it took a little while to realise the full extent uh, of, of what was threatened here. If we could, if we could actually become a little, more, um, uh, a little more sophisticated in how we identify these threats, and how we collectively, as as a humanity, uh, manage it. That, to me, is 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 the is the system shift that we need to see evolve coming out of. Whether it's through the World Health Organization or whoever it is, there needs to be a better system to identify uh, and manage these threats going forward. Bill Gates told us this was happening, as you said in one of your articles. But Bill Gates, who's one of the smartest men on the planet by a number of measures. He's been banging on about this for anybody who'll listen. He's done TED Talks on the topic, yet we still don't seem to want to hear. Just the same with climate change. Bad times are coming, but we just keep kicking it down the road. Yeah, you're right. That'll be a bad thing. But our next generations are going to be inheriting our lack of ability. We just seem to not be able to intuit 
dealing with the bad news later now will prevent the bad news later. We keep kicking it down the road. This seems to be part of the human experience. I must admit, I, I didn't know about the Bill Gates um, TED talk on uh, a, a global pandemic until the current pandemic. And when, yeah. I, when I watched it about two or three weeks ago, I thought, that's probably why you're one of the richest men on the planet. <laughs> you, you can actually see that. Uh, whereas I you know, wasn't aware of it, was not even, what is even remotely aware of it? Yeah. And I think, exactly. I think also that, that disaster planning really wasn't really broad enough if you think about it, if we were very focused on climate and very, very active and, and doing, hopefully, uh, certainly at a corporate level, the right things and at a government level, um, we're pushing in the right direction. I don't think we had really contemplated uh, a global pandemic or really quite grasped what that meant in terms of closing down an economy. Yeah. That, you know, we didn't have a game plan for that. No. One state was doing one thing, another state was doing another thing. We need to get our act together in Australia. It's inconceivable. I, in March, early March, we moved our business off about online, if you know what I mean. So everybody going home. So we got in early with that. We're an events company. We run two events a week. We moved 100% of our events online in one week. But every sign was there a month before that, that that was coming. We just couldn't get our heads around it. We could have started this in January. Yep. But I just seem to seem to this attitude, it's happening there. That's a problem over there. It I never got it that it's coming here. Well, I think there's a problem with inertia. If you've yes. established a business and you know it's going quite well, and you know, why would you why would you upset the apple cart in, in creating a new platform uh, unless unless you are actually really, really prompted? And uh, yeah. by the middle of March, you were really prompted. I really was. <laughs> but, 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 you know, what a terrific effort to actually turn it around uh, within a matter of weeks and um, reinvent. I mean, uh, you could say, well, you know, how do we need to, what do we need to protect ourselves for the future? Yes, we need the right stockpiles and the supply chains and all of that sort of thing, the right global systems to, to manage this. But the greatest thing that you need, I think, is an ability to pivot. Totally. To, to, to think with agility and to take an events business and to turn it into an online business. Mm. And uh, if you have that agility mindset, uh, then you're able to cope with these shocks in, in a much better way. And to sit there and wait for this to pass and to convince ourselves it's only going to be a couple of months and things will get back to normal, that's head in the sand stuff, Bernard. It's just not going to be like that. Well, I, I would certainly think so. Um, I, um, I do think that the world that we re-emerge into will be very different mm. to the world that, uh, that went into lockdown. I think we're far more uh, uh, digitally predisposed. Um, yep. I had bought one or two things online prior to lockdown. <laughs> I stuck every day, every day. It's <laughs> probably better to have, have it delivered from Bunnings rather than actually go to Bunnings to get it. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this uh, this aspect. <laughs> I've discovered the, that new hand soap, the Zistos. Um, so there's all sorts of things. Uh, and then new technology, you know, the technology of Zoom and Skype. Um, again, I think that uh, these are things that we kind of knew were there, but think actually, you know, this is, this is actually a better way to do things. Yeah. So hopefully we will take the good bits, mm. the good skills and learnings from the lockdown 
and create a more productive, a more efficient society uh, and economy going forward. We have to. We can't, it can't go back to the way it was. Anything not lean is not coming through this that well. One of my biggest bugbears is social media. I love, I have a love-hate relationship with social media that runs deep. We fall out very often. Um, social media, I watch the stats on teenage suicides be linked directly to the advent of social media, particularly Twitter and Facebook. I look at the cost it has on younger people literally having trouble having eye contact they're raised staring at a device and the rates of depression that are up by magnitudes of several hundred, the rates of anxiety amongst younger people, it's up by magnitudes of hundreds. Um, suicides amongst young adolescents, girls in the United States is up 300% and they're linking it, if you believe the word of Jonathan Haidt, to social media. And now we're asking that same generation to live there. And I... It's one of my biggest concerns. Like before the pandemic, I was freaking out about social media and how it was shaping and messing up young people's ability to have, to have um, resilience, to understand what it meant to have meaningful and deep relationships, to understand how hard it is to achieve your dreams and the work it freaking takes and the sacrifice you've got to make, the consumable nature of their world. They want it now. They get on. They swipe left. They swipe right. It's just immediate. And now we're saying, do that more and that's all you can do. When yes. we come out the other end, I just, how do we ever unhook them from the way their brains are wired to just do only that? Well, there's no, there is no going back. We, the social no. media genie has come out of the bottle. There's no, yeah. We're not going back uh, to a pre-social media world. Um, I do feel, though, that the social media world really accentuated this celebrity lifestyle. This, because if you look at the way that um, the profiles were curated to infinite, you know, to, to an, the nth degree, you were trying to, to curate a particular lifestyle and package that and present it in social media. It was like, it was like you know, training to be a celebrity, in fact, yes. when you think about it. Yeah. What I think and what I hope is happening with the pandemic is that we're shifting our values. You know, the celebrity in Hollywood is not really connected into the real world. The volunteer firefighter is, the, the supermarket worker is, the healthcare workers are. These are people that I should be admiring. And really, I don't need to curate, uh, curate my lifestyle and my social media image as much as I had thought previously. It's a shift in society's values from all about me to thinking about what, what an individual can do to create, to give to a better society. Maybe I'm being a little aspirational and Pollyannaish around this, but I certainly do think that the way we were going around me, me, me focus was unsustainable. Yep. I think we have shifted direction we need to encourage that shift further and make sure that we don't revert back to the, the, the falseness and the fakery of, uh, of living a social media existence. To tack on to that, we're encouraging, you say, 10 to 15% of people to work from home. I know enough young people to know that the worst thing for their mental health is to tell them to stay home all day and be on social media. That is creating a silo of communication and information that 
there's no unraveling it. The information they're getting is completely curated. And well, now they're in their homes, not getting exposed to non-curated views in the workplace. Well, I do think that that, that is a concern. I don't think that having this number of workers working from home is a healthy thing to do. I do think that the, the proportion will increase from where it was prior to the, uh, the coronavirus. Um, when you look at the values and the lifestyle and the aspirations and the way that the millennial and younger generations want to live, I think that they work best when they come together, collaborate on a project yes. and then move apart. You know, they might go to a, a cafe uh, or they might uh, go home or, or wherever. So this sort of, it's like a pulse. So you come together, you collaborate, and then you go off to your own space. Collaborate, come off. Yep. That's, that to me is a more balanced, more realistic, more, yep. I agree. more mental health friendly way to work. And I think a more productive way to work going forward. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one of the articles you wrote pre this, <laughs> I think you call it a BC and AC. <laughs> oh, before <laughs> Corona and after Corona. Very much BC so. BC and AC. Yeah. I so BC, you were writing about, you had a narrative about how far we've come with women getting back in the workplace. Yep. If we look at the data, a lot of the women in the workplace are part-time and casual and for good reason. And they're the people, obviously, that have been sent home. And I'm wondering how much of the good progress we've made is going to be unraveled. I hope we can claw back the grounds that we had. Well, certainly, I looked at, um, I looked at the gender split in, in uh, about 400 jobs. The Australian Bureau of Statistics produces this absolutely brilliant quarterly document yeah. looking at the number of people employed by 426 jobs, uh, male and female, across Australia, and the data set goes back to 1986. Yep. So you can say, well, what was the spread of 1986? How did it compare with 2020? And in many areas, women have made tremendous inroads to the extent that they're you know, 60, 70, 80% of workers, and often in law and in finance, um, in many in the healthcare industries, uh, not just in nursing, but as medical GPs and specialists as well. Um, but um, I didn't look at the full-time, part-time element of that. And I suspect that there is still a, a greater part-time element to, the, uh, to the, fem the female workforce. But certainly, if you compare 86 with 2020, there has been tremendous gains made. And it would, be, it would be a great shame to see those gains lost uh, as a consequence of the, the resetting of the Australian economy that I think will take place in the winter of 2020. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, as we're wrapping up, one of the things that I hope for, which is one of the things we spoke about very early in this conversation, was that we start a narrative on buying Australian, supporting Australian. But I want to add to that, making it economically viable for Australians to do that. And I'm just, I would love to get a conversation going now because we're coming through this. this. This is going to pass. We're going to come through the other side. We have an opportunity to create a narrative in Australia if we want to about how we want post-corona to look. And I would love it to look like supporting Australian manufacturing, as you said, and shoring up our supply chains. Having a sovereignty, sovereignty attitude about what we're doing, as you said, I wonder that we don't have any narrative around that at all going yet. Well, I, I don't think there is much of a narrative going around that. However, whenever I talk about this, whenever I write a column about this, mm -hmm. let's have a conversation about rebuilding 
strengthening, creating a better Australia, a more resilient, a more productive, a fairer Australia. The response across Australia is absolutely extraordinary. Australians are very, very interested, very patriotic uh, when you scratch the surface. They, they want to, I want to, well, I think we all do, yep. want to create Australia that is successful, that is prosperous, that is yes. fair, that offers opportunity. We have pressed the reset button. It wasn't our choice, but we have pressed the reset button. I don't want to, and I'm sure you don't want to, go back to the way things were. Mm. Because I think with the right discussions and thinking now, we can create a better Australia in the post-corona world. That's certainly the narrative I want to see us start having. I think we're almost used to this level of uncertainty now, that we can now handle this level of uncertainty to start injecting more of this narrative from not just yourself, but other leaders in our community. So we can start contemplating how do we want it to look post-corona? And what do we want to have different? Who do we want to protect? Should Holden have folded? As a result of Holden folded, every supplier chain around them's folded. What prices have we paid for that? And then you apply that to ventilators and everything else we now know we need. There's a domino effect all the way through our communities that perhaps we never even realized before. It all starts with a conversation. And yeah. also education. Who knew? I had no idea what a ventilator was. <laughs> Three or four weeks ago. I certainly there do. are five different types of masks, Bernard. There you are. There yes, you go. I, I didn't know that. But uh, <laughs> you learn what you need to learn. And, and I think having the conversations, that's what we need to be doing right now. They need to be big, bold, aspirational, right out there, always inclusive and always ongoing. It's from those conversations that I think we will create this better Australia to emerge into when we finally get out of lockdown. Yeah. The idea is to get out of reaction and into creation. We haven't made that shift yet, but it's coming and we need to lead the way and make sure that's the conversation. Exactly. Thanks so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to add? Is there anything else you feel that we need to say? No, no, I think um, it's it's been a great discussion and um, I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing, seeing it back. Yeah, absolutely. We'll send it through to you. Thank you.